0: Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst.
1: And I'm Ron Martin.
0: And we're back today talking again about the top 20 reasons not to believe in Christ.
1: Last time, Nate, we uh, went through the first 10 issues that this particular author brought up. This week, we're going to continue with those issues, and I think we'll see again, largely speaking, there is just a complete misunderstanding about what Christianity is, what it believes, what it teaches how Christians are to live in our world, and what the Bible is all about. And I'm looking forward to these next 10 questions. I think it
0: was Darwin that said, Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. (laughs) And when you read things like this, you realize that lots of these atheists and skeptics have more ignorance about Christianity than knowledge, and they find themselves making accusations that are quite easy to shoot down. So, we began last week talking about the first 10 reasons that Chaz Boof outlines for not accepting Christianity. This week, we're going to get into a little bit more in the next 10 reasons why we should reject Christianity. So, let's go straight to number 11. Chaz tells us Christianity has an exceedingly narrow
1: legalistic view of morality. I think the point of Christianity is that it has a morality and that it supports and teaches that there's an absolute morality and a basis for morality in our world. I think one of the things that's interesting about those that attack Christianity in its moral stance are those that would say that they want to justify their own immorality and oppose a biblical standard of what is right and what is wrong and how people are supposed to live and how people relate to God and his standard and his word – What I find interesting is that every atheist that I speak with will support the idea that morality must be founded somewhere in society. And of course, as an atheistic point of view, there is no foundation for morality in our society, but everybody wants one. So I think this argument, again, kind of turns the tables back on the atheistic point of view that says, what is the basis for morality? Why would you even complain about Christianity if there is no morality? It just makes no sense to me. But the morality that is taught by the Bible is the morality of the value of human life, the consequence of human action relative to each other and to God, and that there is justice in our world.
0: The Bible tells us about an objective standard for morality, which, by the way, if that does not exist, there is no standard for morality. And who's to tell you that anything is right or wrong? I was debating an atheist once on a public forum here on campus, and he was trying to support the idea that there is no objective standard for morality, and I told him, well, would it be okay for me to drive a large knife through your stomach? And he said, (laughs) I would find it unpleasant, but I can't tell you it would be wrong. Mm. That was the natural Mm. outworking of his own philosophy, which is the only philosophy you get when you remove that objective standard. We all realize how ridiculous a statement that is, and that is because the Bible tells us that God's law has been written on our hearts, and we all have that. We call that a conscience. We know Mm. intrinsically right versus wrong in many different areas, and interestingly, that lines up with what we find in Scripture, and Jesus summarized all that in the law that he said was the foremost law, which was to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and second, to love our neighbor as ourself. As we talk about this supposed narrow and legalistic view of morality, we should remember that every nation, every people group, every ethnicity, all through history, has had a system of morality very similar to what we find in Scripture.
1: In fact, that's the very definition of society, of civilization, is that there are laws and rules by which people live.
0: I'll put it real simply, you believe in objective moral truth. You do. If you were to get shortchanged at the grocery store, I use this example a lot, you would not be okay with any response that the cashier could give you. You'd want your money back because you know there's a right and a wrong, and getting shortchanged is wrong. If the cashier said, no, 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 you don't understand. My morality says it's okay to rob you. You wouldn't say, oh, in that case, enjoy the $5. dollars you would say, I don't care what your morality says. That's mine. <laughs> give it back now. If you believe in objective moral truth, which I believe you do believe, whether you agree to that or not, you also have to agree that there is an objective moral truth giver or a standard on which that objective moral truth lies. And that standard would have to be somebody greater than this universe and all truth, namely God himself. Hmm. The next point is that Christianity encourages acceptance of real evils while focusing on imaginary evils. I wanted to read Romans twelve twenty one, where Paul writes, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Definitely not an encouragement of evil, but rather an encouragement to overcome evil with good. A lot of times people claim, look at all the terrible things Christians have done throughout history. Hmm. And we'll get to this in a minute, Ron. I know you've studied this a lot. But before we even get there, I want to mention that it is a law of philosophy that you never judge a philosophy by its abuse. You judge a philosophy by its correct application. So when Jesus tells you to love your neighbor as yourself and to love your enemy, if you then turn around and kill your neighbor and your enemy, you are not correctly applying Christ's law. Hmm. It would be wrong then to say Christ was wrong in what he said because of your actions. Well, of course he wasn't. He was right. The fact that you disobeyed him was wrong, (laughs) all right? So we never judge a philosophy by its abuse. We judge a philosophy by its correct application. So when we look at things like the Crusades, those people were not loving God, and they were not loving their neighbor as themselves. And because of that, they were not following Christ. And Christianity is no longer on trial, but rather sinful human beings are on trial because they deviated from Christ's commands,
1: I think I hear these kind of objections more often than any other objection to Christianity and morality, and they point to the Crusades, the Inquisition, witch burning, those kind of things. It's very sensationalistic. It evokes a lot of emotion, but one of the things I like to do is turn this back on people and say, and actually Chad did it here in his question, the previous question was, why are you Christians so uptight about morality? And then he says, what about evil? (laughs) Why is there evil in our world? Why would Christians engage in evil? And I say, well, wait a second, you're the one that's objecting to the idea of morality to begin with. Even Richard Dawkins says that the outcome of his philosophy is that there is no right or wrong. It's absolutely fine for one nation to conquer another or one person to murder another if he needs what that nation or person wants. There's this large dichotomy and contradiction and morality taking place here. But all that withstanding, here's how I like to approach this, particularly with the Crusades. The Crusades was a political war between nations. Granted, those nations had ideologies behind them, both of Islam and Christianity and the medieval world. But what I like to do when this comes up is I say, you know, basically, how many lives do you think were lost in the Crusades? And the typical response I get is, you know, something like probably millions, And I say, really? Ironically, through all the different crusades, there were about 200,000 lives lost, not millions. And again, in any kind of war situation, we regret the loss of life. You know, if we just compare this to the Napoleonic War in the late 1700s, early 1800s, you're talking about 2.5 million lives lost. War happens in any number of circumstances. It wasn't really Christians driving this war. There were certainly those in the church at the time that supported it, just like we would have today. There were those in the church that opposed it, just like we would have today. And it was a war of territory. It was a war of resources. And like any war, the loss of life is tragic and horrible to look at, but it's a reality of our world. It wasn't necessarily the Christians just going after the Muslims or vice versa. And a lot of the Crusades, we should remember, and again, I'm not trying to excuse what
0: happened then. It was terrible. But a lot of the Crusades were fought in retaliation for the former atrocities that were committed when the Muslim nations took over those lands in the first place. As a Christian, I will never say the atrocities perpetrated by those in the name of Christ were okay. They were very wrong. But at the same time, we need to remember the historical context And I'll even go a little bit further and say we need to remember the biblical context. The popes that were commanding these things were commanding people that had no knowledge of Scripture because they were not allowed to read the Scripture. And so they didn't know what Scripture said, and the pope was manipulating God's Word for power. That's pure and simple what was happening there. There is nowhere in Scripture where Christians were told to do these things. And I do believe that it would be wrong to attribute them to true Christ followers.
1: The other thing that comes up very often is the Inquisition. Certainly the darkest period in this would be in the late 1400s, going all the way through the mid-1800s. Again, political motives invaded the church on a very broad level, and there were abuses. But when you think about a 400-year period, again, I like to ask people, how many lives do you think were lost in the Inquisition? and I get exaggerated numbers of anywhere from tens to hundreds of thousands, and really it was about 2,000 lives over that 350 to 400 year period. Compare that to political imprisonment or assassinations or politically motivated deaths today, it doesn't even register on the radar. Many of these cases were actually violent criminals that were tried, and prosecuted under the law of the time. Unfortunately, there were abuses. We always see abuses in power now. We see abuses in power then. But this relates somewhere to about 10 people a year, lives that were lost under this abusive system that I was glad to see go away. There's no doubt about it. Again, that wouldn't even register the murder rate in Los Angeles these days as an issue. But it's held up as something that's exaggerated, as something, as some kind of horrible terror of the time that accounted for hundreds of thousands of lives. And it's just simply not true. It's one of the distortions of history. And we could even bring in witch burning in the same level. It's held up as kind of the paradigm of how the abuse of religious liberties and personal liberties were taking place. Again, very bizarre, short-lived circumstance of history But all in all, we can account for somewhere around 20 to 25 people that were actually lost in what we call the witch burnings. And what most people don't know is actually in Europe, the church under Charlemagne actually outlawed the persecution of witches, the arrest, the trial, any kind of punitive action against witches in Europe. And that same law came over to the New World and New England of the time And what happened in New England with the Salem witch trials as we know them was a total abuse of power by a group of radicalized people that weren't even formally part of the church. It wasn't the church that persecuted them. It was the town leaders at the time, but it wasn't a formal action of the church. In fact, the churches at the time spoke against this. 19 of those people were executed as witches, five of them died in jail. So again, only 24 people died. And I've heard numbers of tens of thousands of people that died in the witch trials. To bring up these issues as wild examples of Christianity run amuck and practicing evil simply isn't accurate. His
0: 13th reason not to accept Christianity is that it depreciates the natural world. In reality, one of the first commands to people was to manage this world that God had given them. And God tells us how to do that, telling us in the New Testament that we should steward all that he puts under our control and care very well, that we should do a good job stewarding it. And as Christians, I think we need to look at everything God gives us, whether that's our family, our loved ones, our possessions, our jobs, and we should manage those with a tremendous sense of care, knowing that God has given them to us to be diligent with them. And I feel compelled as a believer to treat the natural world
1: that way. It's so important, Nate. Just this week, I met with a student here who is an environmental studies major, and I was asking her why she chose that field of study. And she said, you know, the bottom line is, I just love what God gave us in our world, and I want to take care of it. And again, I think it's just a broad generalization and an erroneous generalization. ...to say that we don't appreciate the natural world. He continues saying Christianity models authoritarian
0: organization. Rather than modeling authoritarianism, Jesus said in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, "...you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave." Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So rather than condoning authoritarianism, Jesus himself says, not so in his kingdom. Hmm. We are to serve each other rather than desiring to be served. And he says, and this is correct, that the world's systems authorize this type of authoritarianism. And that is true. Look at your workplace. Look at the government. It is all based on climbing to the top of the proverbial social ladder, and then dominating those below you. And Jesus said, it should not be that way among his followers. Rather, we should serve each other from unconditional love. And he modeled that for us. Again, a crazy criticism of Christianity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution here on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, and kdur.org online. And we're talking about the top 20 reasons not to believe in Jesus Christ. We're going through this list provided by an atheist of why not to accept Christ's claims. He continues saying that Christianity sanctions slavery. Do you remember where that is in Scripture, Ron, where it says that Gee, I can't, I, okay? I,
1: I can't think of a verse at all that would mention <laughs> that. I can think of multiple verses that address slavery. What the passages in Scripture address is if you're a slave, be a Christian slave that believes in the value of the other person, even your master, and potentially lead that master to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and salvation. And we shouldn't forget that it's
0: been Christians that have led the fight against slavery in history. Remember people like William Wilberforce and others who ended slavery in the past. And even today, there is slavery going on around the world And the reality is that, once again, it's Christians today that are fighting slavery on an international scale. And they're doing that because Scripture tells us in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Saying that in Christ's image, we are all created as equals, loved by God, created in his image, and to be respected as his children An entire book in the New Testament, Paul's letter to Philemon, was written to a slave owner. Mm -hmm. And Paul encouraged this slave owner, Philemon, to receive his slave, Onesimus, treating him and loving him as a brother. So, kind of a good perspective on the biblical viewpoint of how this should be treated. So no, Christianity in no way sanctions slavery, but rather tells those that find themselves as slaves to be Christ-like and love unconditionally, and also tells those that have slaves, you had better love your (laughs) slaves in a Christ-like and unconditional way. You cannot treat them as slaves any longer. So no sanction of slavery there. Chaz tells us that Christianity is misogynistic. And again, we just read Galatians 3.28, which says that in Christ there is neither male nor female. The scriptural command was always that men and women are both equals in God's sight and should not be treated otherwise. In scripture, we find both masculine and feminine characteristics of God. From a Christian worldview, we believe that together, both sexes demonstrate a picture of who God is, that neither one of us owns it alone. The freedom given to women in the early church and the equality given to them was radical in the first century A.D., which is why in the first century there were a large number of women coming to faith in Christ because they were treated with more respect and dignity and equality than they were anywhere else in society.
1: God created man and woman to enjoy relationship with him directly. And if you look at the Hebrew scriptures, even before the New Testament period, the role of women in what we call redemptive history, in the unfolding plan of God to reach humanity, the role of women is remarkable compared to virtually any other religious system, even the ancient religious systems of paganism. The fact that women would have the role of bearing the lineage of King David, for example, the Rahab, the harlot, and the story of Joshua, and even in second kings twenty two the fact that there was an ancient scroll of the Torah found in the temple after paganism had essentially taken over the land, and they went to a woman prophetess to tell King Josiah of what to do with that word and what it meant to the people so again, even in the what we call the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a tremendous role for women, and by the time we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus embracing women as disciples. We see the women at the tomb just after his resurrection that discovered the empty tomb. On and on and on, the role of women is highly valued compared to many of the ancient cultures and religions of the time. And usually what brings on a statement like this is one or two verses where wives are asked to be submissive to their husbands, and they take that to mean that Christianity wants to just badger women and keep them you know, locked up in the kitchen. It, it just makes no sense to me
0: when the Bible tells wives to submit to their husbands, it says that right after it tells husbands to lay down their lives for their wives, just like Christ laid down his for the church. In other words, my desires are second to hers. My dreams are second to hers. My will is second to hers. Everything in my life comes second to those of my wife. My wife doesn't have any trouble at all submitting to that plan. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is... That word submission in the Greek was literally a military word that described a relationship between two military commanders where one was fighting a battle and needed help, and another would come alongside and say, All of my resources, everything I have, I'm putting together with yours to fight this battle and win this battle. So it was not a picture of domineering over each other, but rather one of fighting the battle of life together as a team. It was a beautiful picture. Yeah. It's, of what a, it's a, the Bible a wonderful picture. Chaz continues saying Christianity is homophobic. Christianity is not homophobic at all. Scripture talks about every single person's value in the sight of God, how every single one of us is created in God's image, and how every single one of us deserves to be loved unconditionally, regardless of our actions or our beliefs or anything like that. Christianity talks about many different actions that it says are wrong. Homosexuality might be one of those, but there are many others too, like gossip and slander, and hate, lying. and pride, yep. <laughs> deception, and lying. And sometimes the church has incorrectly picked one of those over the others and somehow painted the picture that those people are worse than gossipers, slanderers, liars, and haters. And the reality is, is that is not the case. The Bible says that every one of us is sinful and desperately needs a Savior and that all people are loved by God. I think I have more gay and lesbian friends than almost anybody I know, and I love them dearly, and I'm sharing Christ's love with them, hoping that they will come into relationship with him. That is my number one hope for each of those friends that I love dearly, is that they would find Christ and that Christ could come into their life and make them the kind of people he wants them to be from the inside out. That's my hope for them, and that's my hope for everybody listening to this show today. Chaz tells us that the Bible is not a reliable guide to Christ's teachings.
1: You know, it's amazing. The New Testament gospel writers provide us with more evidence on a hardcore historical level than virtually any other person, any other individual in the ancient world. We have more literature about the life of Jesus compared to, name it, any other historical character. We have more testimony about the impact of that life than any other character. People don't like what Jesus said, and so the easiest way to get away from being responsible and reacting to what Jesus said is just dismiss it as untrue. But that doesn't mean that it is untrue. There is a rigid mechanism of historical evidence and documentation that we can go back to with remarkable reliability and know that these are indeed his words, that those were his actions on earth, that everything he did and said and taught that we have in our new testaments and our bibles today is exactly what he taught to those people then obviously we're culturally removed we're linguistically removed but the idea of scholarship being able to get us back to those truthful statements and actions is highly highly reliable even to a remarkable level that nothing else in the ancient world comes close to
0: number 19 the bible is riddled with contradictions and without getting too deep in this It is not. (laughs) The reality is there are many supposed contradictions that are easily resolved when we come to realize and understand the original text and the setting and things like that. And I've read through all the hundreds of supposed contradictions, and being totally honest, I've only found one that did not quickly get resolved, Mm -hmm. and that one with a little further Mm -hmm. study was also quickly resolved. The final criticism is that Christianity borrowed its central myths and ceremonies from other ancient religions. And this is actually quite a funny way to end the show, because <laughs> I was actually asked this in a debate once. Someone said, what about Horus? Didn't they just take Jesus Christ's story from the Egyptian figure of Horus? And the first part of the answer is no. We can go back and look at the historical figure of Jesus and see what he did and what he said and what he taught. Those things are very well preserved in history. We cannot do that with Horace, who, by the way, was not even a person. It was a half-falcon, half-person mythological character. So we see very quickly that we're comparing apples to oranges here. We're talking real history in the case of Jesus Christ and make-believe stories outside of that real history. And it's impossible to say that since there are some similarities... The real history that we have in abundance must all be false well no we have the real history we can go back and look at it now speaking specifically about horace who is the predominant example given i would like to just mention a few things they say that horace was born of a virgin birth like christ in reality horace was born after his brother chopped his father into a thousand pieces and then not to be crass but Horace's mother put his penis back together and impregnated herself and had Horus. Not quite the virgin birth of Scripture. (laughs) Definitely mythological and very interesting, but by no means a virgin birth. Some of the Egyptian texts say that he was born in a manger, it is claimed. That is not true. They say he was born in a swamp. They say that he had the same number of disciples as Jesus, 12. In reality, there's no discussion of that either. There's one place, I think, where it says he had six followers, another place where it says he entered battle with three friends, but there's no place where it even mentions him having 12 of any type of followers, much less disciples. Those are just some examples of how far critics will go to show that Jesus is not trustworthy, when in reality they could just look at the history and find otherwise. And it's kind of crazy some of christianity ceremonies for example christmas which we're about to celebrate were based on some pagan holidays as far as when we celebrated those dates that doesn't change anything i don't believe jesus was literally born on december 25th but it's as good a day as any to celebrate his birth and the fact that we celebrated on that date has no
1: impact on the historicity of the claim that he was born. That's exactly right. It's It's a straw man argument is what it is. It's basically, again, another example of people saying, I don't like what Jesus says, so I'll dismiss it as mythology. I'll dismiss it as unhistorical. I'll do anything I can do to keep from confronting the truth that when Jesus entered this world, walked on this earth, and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life that he really meant, that I am the way to the Father, the way to reconcile men to God, that he is the truth and the personage of truth to us that we can trust and rely on, and that he is a life. He is the one that gives us life and hope and brings mercy into our world. And what Christians really believe as a worldview is that our life and our world would be purposeless, meaningless, and empty without the person of Jesus Christ in it. So anybody that is listening that has ever asked those questions, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? How do I find justice and peace and mercy in this world? The answer is to embrace Jesus Christ, the real living historical person that was here, the real son of God that died on that cross, raised from the dead, gave himself for us and left the message for us to discover in the New Testament We encourage you to ask those questions, find the solutions in Jesus, and accept Him as your personal Lord and Savior right now.
0: And He tells you the second you receive Him, you are given the right of becoming His child. The second you open the door, He says He will come in and He'll never leave. Evaluate the evidence. Come to Jesus, recognizing that you are a sinner that desperately needs a Savior, and ask Him to come into your life and change you from the inside out, to forgive you of your sins. And from that moment, the Bible says he really will enter your life and you'll be guaranteed an eternity with him in heaven and a life full of his presence on this earth. Chaz did not come through for us as far as 20 (laughs) reasons to reject Christianity. It was interesting going through all these different points that Chaz makes. But Chaz, I think you need to brush up on your history Mm -hmm. and your criticisms of Christianity I would like to invite you to Connect this week. It'll be our last Connect of the year, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. in the Student Life Center in Room 119. We'll be having a discussion about the significance of Christmas, and it'll be a blast. So come visit us at Connect 7.30 this week at the Student Life Center in Room 119. Also, I would invite you to join Grace Church this morning. Grace Church meets at 1440 Florida Road. They meet at 10.45 a.m., They are a group of believers that are going to accept you for who you are, and they're going to love you no matter where you're coming from and encourage you in your walk with God and share more with you about how you can begin a relationship with him and grow in that relationship. As we always say, I want to conclude the show saying an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I would encourage you, as you evaluate some of the evidence that we've discussed the past two weeks, to have an open mind about this, to have an honest heart and a humble disposition, and to search diligently, realizing that the evidence for Christ is much better than the evidence against Christ. Hmm. And if that's the reality, then how could you do anything other than accept him? That's our hope today, that you would come to him. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll tune in next week. See you next week.